What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 49. We're going to be doing an actor spotlight on the great Jake Gyllenhaal, who is one of the best actors of his generation. He's truly a great talent in the world of film, and somehow this guy doesn't have an Oscar. He's only got one nomination for Brokeback Mountain, and I think he's just, I don't think people think he's underrated in terms of his skill and range, but I think he's maybe underappreciated to an extent. And he's just, he's such a great actor. I've been, we've been watching him for years. We've been growing up with him, starring in movies, and I love every single movie he's in. Yeah, he's, he doesn't make bad movies except maybe Prince of Persia. And otherwise, his career is fantastic. It's very varied in terms of roles. He changes his entire persona, his, his look, his appearance, his weight. Uh, he looks like a different person every time he takes a role, so he really transforms for his for his acting performances. And like you said, I agree, he's one of the one of the best talents of his generation. And you're right; I think that's a good point that he is underappreciated. I think people, everyone knows he's a great actor, but I think he's been in a lot of really great small films that not too many people have seen. And uh, we're gonna go over a bunch of them today. Yeah. So basically, we're gonna go through his uh, career. We'll go over. Basically, just the the biggest movies and most important movies he's in, the best ones. Uh, we'll skip ones that aren't worth talking about. We'll bring him up in terms of what he was doing around those times and those years. But we're just going to focus on his best movies. Um, we'll we'll talk briefly about films we've already talked about. Like, we've done Zodiac and we've yeah, done episodes on Prisoners. So if you want to see those more in-depth or listen to those more in-depth, check those episodes out. But we, we still have a lot to talk about with Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, he has, he's, at his age, he's been in a ton of movies. It's pretty crazy. The best way to support our podcast is to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the full video versions, follow and turn on the notifications on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving a five-star review is super beneficial. We love reading what you guys write too. And we have a Patreon where you can support us monthly. Members get personalized videos, messages, sneak peeks at upcoming episodes, and top-tier patrons get immortalized with a shout-out on the podcast once a month. As always, spoilers are a bound. Jake Gyllenhaal was born on December 19th, 1980 in Los Angeles, California. He and his sister, actress Maggie Gyllenhaal, are the children of filmmakers Naomi Foner and Stephen Gyllenhaal. Their last name is Swedish, and Jake's first film was City Slickers, and then his parents would really only let him work on specific projects, like he couldn't do Mighty Ducks even though the filmmakers wanted him because he would have been away from home for too long. Uh, Jake also worked... Uh, odd jobs during the summer to help support himself, which his parents thought was really beneficial for his development. And he did work as an actor when his parents allowed it. He then attended Columbia University, where his sister Maggie was a senior, but Jake dropped out after two years to focus on acting and ended up landing the lead role in October Sky, which was a breakout film for him, but Donnie Darko was really what made him famous. Yeah, and actually, he and Maggie Gyllenhaal are the only siblings to have Oscar nominations for acting in this century there's a pair that did it i think in the 1950s uh brother and sister but these two are the only uh siblings and i think it's pretty rare to see siblings who are actors that are both very talented and successful um and both of them are absolutely excellent actors what did uh, maggie get her nomination for maggie gyllenhaal was nominated for crazy heart and jake gyllenhaal was nominated for brokeback mountain and jake gyllenhaal for as successful he became he actually lost out on two major roles he lost out on spider-man to toby mcguire and he lost out on Batman for Batman Begins with Christian Bale. He was actually finalist for casting for both of those movies. And he actually replaced Tobey Maguire for Spider-Man 2 because Tobey Maguire uh, broke his back um, for the film Seabiscuit. So he dropped out of Spider-Man. And then they, no one thought he would be able to do Spider-Man again. So Jake Gyllenhaal took his place. But then Maguire healed up and 
um, was able to perform against. So then he took the role back of Spider-Man. So he was actually almost Spider-Man in Spider-Man 2. Yeah, I think a lot of actors, it's kind of like that that just an odd instance or weird instance where time just doesn't always work out. And sometimes, you know, you're doing other projects that prevent you from doing these other films. And, you know, I'm sure there's an alternate reality where Jake Gyllenhaal was Spider-Man. Maybe he was Batman. I'm sure he would have killed both of those roles. I think he would have been great as Peter Parker in Spider-Man. He would have been a good Peter so, Parker. So I can he see, might, although he might be too handsome for Peter Parker. Well, Peter Parker in the comic books is a handsome guy, too. They just put glasses on him and pretend he's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you can see how he could be any superhero really he just got a lot of those great qualities as well as being a, a diverse actor in terms of his range and he's just got a ton of different roles and i mean the guy's a chameleon in so many different ways and in tons of different films which we'll get to in a little bit 100 mm-hmm. percent. but his career started in 1999 with october sky and i swear this movie was always on tv on the days that i would fake sick <laughs> and stay home from school and i'd like hang out in mom and dad's bed all day in the big in the big queen size bed and October's guy was always on TV and I'd always watch it and Jake's a he's a young guy in this movie and he, he displays a ton of talent and potential and he's he's starring opposite heavyweights like Chris Cooper and Laura Dern in this movie yeah and I think uh the coming of age film is kind of dying out nowadays most uh young most kids movies and young adult movies are either animated Pixar or DreamWorks or they're superhero movies and I think the coming of age drama is losing a lot of steam in terms of uh, the kinds of movies they're getting made. I, they're, for, for like young adults? Yeah, for kids. young adults. I mean, there aren't that many. I mean, Unless superheroes or, or yeah, like or, adult or, fictions involved like Hunger Games or yeah, Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. So like these dystopian sci-fi young adult stories are the ones that are dominating the coming of age category and genre. But before, the, before 2000, films like October Sky were, uh, they were moderately successful and a lot of them were made in this is a great coming-of-age uh, film about just a young guy who's who's stuck in this world where his he comes from a family of coal miners, and he's supposed to be a coal miner, and he's told that he has no opportunity to really achieve anything with his life, and uh, his his inspiration and his his thirst for exploration are what gets him out of this coal mining town. Yeah, when he and his community see Sputnik traveling across the sky, he gets the inspiration to want to fly into the sky and send rockets into space and... This movie always makes me feel lucky to have been born in the time I was born in and where I was born because this was a forgotten culture for a lot of American families living in these communities and working these very tough jobs like coal mining where you're you're literally working under the crust of the earth in horrible conditions. These 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 guys were sacrificing their long-term health, their current health. Um, it made them like char- like Chris Cooper's character, it hardened them and turned them apathetic and hateful in, in a way. And the way these see- these people see it and the way um, Homer Homer's father sees it is that his life ended the first day that he went down to the coal mines. It was over. That's, that's it. And it, however, does provide a, a life for his family. And so in his eyes, when his son Homer decides that he wants to do something else with his life, he takes it as a spit in his face. Yeah, because uh, his father... From his, you get look at it from his point point of view where he sacrificed his life to to provide uh, for his family to put food on the table and give him a home to live in and um, his his son Homer wanting to pursue different goals to to use his mind and pursue science and engineering he sees as a lost cause because no one from this town ever escapes these these coal mining towns especially in like Pennsylvania um, they've been coal mining towns for a very long time since the late eighteen hundreds and they, the Industrial Revolution was such a success because of the people and the generations who mined coal. And before the like 1950s, kids mined coal. Like 
the little 12, 13-year-olds were mining coal in, in, in caves and tunnels, and it was a rough life. And Homer sees something more for himself, and he has decided to pr- pursue uh, a dream no matter how crazy it seems to yeah, the others. And in contrast to those dark mines underground, he has aspirations for shooting rockets into the sky, into space, which he does, and him and his friends get into some trouble when they start a forest fire and are, and are blamed for it, and they get arrested but let go pretty much, and then... Again, we have this conflicting uh, relationship between him and his father throughout the entire film, but there is a soft side to his dad when he finally, you know, sees how happy this life makes Homer, uh, even though Homer does take to the mines like he's supposed to, but he eventually, one of the strengths of the film is that he has this bravery to stand up to his father and take a, and move on past that life of control and how he's basically destined to be a coal miner like every everyone else in the in the community and and it's a great third act when they have the the fair and his uh, piece gets stolen the nozzle and they have to open up the factory just to get the piece made and they get there just in time yeah. and, and they win first prize and he meets his hero doesn't know who it is at first and and he returns a hero to his community to his coal mining community and his father accepts him finally yeah and also shows the uh, the power that uh teachers can have on young people because Laura Dern plays Homer's teacher and she's pretty much the only one in his life who keeps pushing him and encouraging him to to pursue his goals and every, the, his family are looking down on it but um, a, a good teacher can have a lot a, a great impact on on students and young people and I think this film perfectly shows that with Laura Dern's character overall it's a really great movie it's very underrated it's a, it's a great coming of age story like you said and I think a lot of kids get a lot of inspiration from this movie. I have a friend who uh, worked at NASA, and he became an astro, uh, uh, rocket scientist because of this movie. And you know, you can tell the impact it could have on young people in their lives and their their decisions on whether they. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply wanted to do with their lives jeff bezos became interested in investing in a space company after he saw this film october sky and now we have blue origin which he's planning to use to build space colonies yeah which is a lot more under the radar than spacex but i'm telling you they got some stuff going on yeah over they got there. big things cooking over there this episode of raiders of the lost podcast is brought to you by manscaped the leaders in men's below the waist grooming manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your comfort obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience cologne deodorizers briefs t-shirts their their amazing lawnmower groomer which has a light on it it's waterproof you can use in the shower they sent us their weed whacker which is a great way to tell your spouse or loved one that hey you need to start trimming up those ears and that that nose you can get 20 percent off your order and free shipping using coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout again raiders of the lost at checkout for 20 percent off and free shipping 
from manscaped.com. It's a necessary part of life. This is the perfect gift for any of the men in your life. Do it ASAP. And although that was a breakout role for, for Jake, Donnie Darko, which came out in 2001 and was written and directed by Robert Kelly, was really what made him very famous because this became a cult sensation film. And um, people love this movie. I don't know many people that have seen this movie and don't this and don't like it because this is again this went cult origins for a while and jake gyllenhaal was kind of like the independent film like little prince for a while before he started doing bigger budget films and i think a lot, a lot of people were upset when he did the day after tomorrow making that money man but yeah you gotta make your money make your career happen happen impossible but johnny darko is one of jake's most famous roles this incredible film deals with a lot of cl- complex themes of, of life reality existence mental illness and I, I love this movie so much yeah in terms of word of mouth this came out what was it, 99 or 2000? 2001. 2001. And I remember when we were kids, everyone was talking about this movie when it came out on DVD. Because back then, you went to DVD stores and like Blockbuster or Tower Records and others, and you would rent movies or buy movies. And so with this film, a lot of people were talking about it. And our brothers showed us this movie because it was like, oh, they were like, this crazy movie. You have to see it. It's, it's wild. And everyone's seeing it. It's just like insane movie. you never seen anything like it. And I, word of mouth really brought this film um, to the attention of a lot of people. And I think this movie made in- insane DVD sales compared to its box office. Didn't make that money on its that much money on its run, but in terms of DVD sales and VHS sales, it crushed it. Yeah, and this film takes a really complex and almost abstract look at reality and parallel universes and time travel. And, you know, you can look at it also as a case of, of potentially schizophrenia and you know, the, the cool thing about this film is it's ambiguous and you get to interpret it for yourself, whether all these things happening in this film are real or, or, or they're all just constructs in Donnie Darko's head. And the film is a quick synopsis of the film. After narrowly escaping a bizarre incident, a troubled teenager is plagued by a vision of a man in a large rabbit suit who manipulates him to commit a series of crimes. And this, this whole film takes, it gets set off when Donnie Darko um, sleepwalks after seeing visions of his bunny suit friend. And he leaves his, his bedroom in his house and a jet engine, turbo engine, just falls into his bedroom and no one knows where this engine came from. And so this film deals with alternate realities and in different places of existence and what would his life have been like if he stayed in that bedroom at that time and point. The idea of fatalism, like are we not in control of our lives and our actions and the idea of predestination. And, and Frank the Rabbit is such a creepy image and I remember being a kid being super weirded out by him and... But it, it became an iconic uh, image for the film was the idea of was the image of Frank the Rabbit with this strange, weird-looking face, and it's it's not friendly at all. It's pretty scary, and um, uh, some of the theories about this film are that it's uh, it involves dimensional travel, where um, in a different dimension, uh, Donnie killed the guy who was wearing the Frank the Rabbit costume, and then that that person after they died, they became like this interdimensional traveler. Who then saved Donnie from from the airplane engine falling on his house, and then um, the entire course of the film are a bunch of events in which um, Donnie is being aided by Frank to carry out a series of events which would uh, end up saving um, the other people at the end of the film. Yeah, and also this film is about an alternate reality where if Donnie doesn't leave that bedroom, he just dies and is kaput. But Throughout the film, the entire story of this film is what happens to Donnie because he's left. He left his bedroom. It's just this different reality, like like I said earlier, a different reality where Jake Gyllenhaal is Spider Man. Just one little thing <laughs> happened that was different. Now, 
you can interpret whether he's actually time traveling at the end of the film when he goes back to his original place to accept his death of the turbo jet engine or or you can also look at this entire film as one giant hallucina- hallucination from clearly he suffers from mental illness and he has a lot of health problems and schizophrenia is definitely more of him because he has this imaginary friend and again you don't know if it's real or not does he really see these these lines and bubbles that show the the fatalistic movements that, that people are predetermined to make or is he just hallucinating that that's a great point because imagine if the film uh, followed the perspective of a different character who interacted with Donnie where you didn't see what Donnie was seeing but you he would describe him to another character and then he would sound very mentally ill and like you said schizophrenic so I think it's you can definitely make the case that he could be suffering from uh, mental delusions. It's one of those films. It's like it's like a Chris Nolan film where it's up to you at the end to decide what you think the story's about, what do you think it, it, it's really saying, and what do you think things are real or not. I like to think that it's because I love sci-fi and I love just discussing the ideas of dimensions and and time travel and all sorts of crazy stuff and concepts. I think I like to look at this film as. Uh, happening on two different dimensions yeah you can even look at it as three different dimensions or or the film takes place on three different dimensions but yeah so basically you like to see it that he travels back in time at the end or back to his original i wouldn't say back point. in time he's in a different dimension yeah. from the donnie that dies okay okay i got gotcha. you so frank the rabbit's from the donnie dying dimension i think and then he saves donnie in this dimension so they're different dimensions but they're different so then there's three timelines then there's three yeah so three, three timelines, timelines. yeah yeah but then you can also look at it as he knew that he averted this fate in this dimension, in this timeline, and because Gretchen dies that he wants to go back in time and accept his death because what's the point in living anymore if the only thing that he ever loved died? Yeah. So it's, it's a really fun film to interpret, and yeah. it deserves like a 30-minute breakdown for sure, which we will do eventually. It's a movie that it, it welcomes repeat viewings, especially when you're, you're young. and you, I, I had never seen anything like it before with the movie that ask such crazy questions now we're used to it because so many filmmakers obviously were inspired by films like this and they used films like this as inspiration for their own films and we're used to these ideas being explored now but back then like this movie and only a handful of others were really talking about these intense themes and ideas yeah it's got a great cast and maggie gyllenhaal is in this too and she plays his sister obviously which is super fun to see them two on camera yeah and then patrick swayze's in this movie so it's, it's one got, of his last roles got a great cast and seth rogan's in this he's really young and this it, is it's his first movie he plays the school bully yeah which is like yeah. you don't think of seth rogan as a bully but i mean i guess he kind of pulls it off because he's just he can't be guy. when you're 16 yeah he's big you know but i love donnie darko i promise we will break this down more in depth soon but we're just cruising through his uh, filmography for yeah, yeah. After this, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal stepped into a big budget filmmaking for the first time in his career with The Day After Tomorrow, which was a, a massive success. I mean, this movie, what was it, 2004? And it grossed uh, $68 million opening weekend and then $550 million worldwide. So it was a huge success. This is, this is pre-superhero movies, you know what I mean? These kinds of numbers, um, they were very impressive for any kind of film. Now we're used to a Marvel movie making a billion dollars like it's nothing, but... These kinds of grosses were very rare for studio films, and this was a this film began the trend for disaster movies, and they became very popular over the next ten years. Not that there weren't already disaster movies like we had Volcano and Twister and films like that. Yeah, but in terms of a massive blockbuster, yeah. like Roland Emmerich made like a half a dozen of these disaster movies, <laughs> and they're all as garbage as the as the rest. And no, this the day after tomorrow. It's a classic. It's cliche ridden. Uh, it's the end of the world, but you know what? I'm not ashamed to say that I've seen this movie like 
10 times, especially in my youth. It was always on FX like every week. Yeah, it and was. It was a great role for Jake and Bo- and Emmy Rossum because it got them in global attention. And I'm sure they got a, a fat check to help propel their careers too. And, and the concept is wild. A new ice age basically forms in like a week or less. And the day after tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. And then uh, old Roland Emmerich. I mean, what movie of his doesn't have a wild script and wild concept? And I think clearly he's trying to deliver this this um, message of enviro- environmental message and environmental threat um, and needing to be more conscious of that. But I think that because this film is so over the top that that's just completely exaggerated and lost. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very silly to think that all the new Ice Age could happen within two days. Obviously, it's com- I'm there. They were well aware that how exaggerated this was, but like they're just trying to. Um, sent a message to the audiences but it was funny because when we first saw this movie i i thought it was a, a possible thing for the yeah, for sure i was like oh man this I could happen like, oh my god this might happen one day i was terrified of it happening but i mean yeah the story's ridiculous but um, this is a great display of uh the the incoming special effects that were being created in this film among with the star wars movies uh they were some of the the early successes of using extensive CGI in films um, and making it believable. I, I Most of the time, this this the visual effects in this film, they hold up. Some of it doesn't look that great, but most of all, it, it looks really good and still and still can compare to modern CGI films. Yeah, I think Emmerich just likes to shock you with ideas and images, and I mean, with like having the Statue of Liberty under, under snow and you just see the torch and hand sticking out, which is, you know, it's an incredible image and it's just mind-blowing. He just likes destroying landmarks, whether it be the White House blowing up in Independence Day or that <laughs> Statue of Liberty. In this movie, it's kind of like an actual blizzard. You can't help but watch the snow fall outside your window and while you're inside and you're warmth, but eventually you have to get out there and shovel your car out and you know it's going to suck, but you're going to have to do it. You just got to stick through the whole film. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he doesn't have much scenery to chew on or any good dialogue to work with, but I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal served his purpose in this in this movie with a big budget like this. You're not given much freedom or much of character to work with. And But this is a very important step in his, in his career because uh, having a movie be this successful it makes you an in-demand actor in Hollywood, and the success of The Day After Tomorrow is what gave him the the availability to make other movies, especially the ones we'll talk about next, because when you become a successful star with a big movie under your belt, everyone wants to work with you. And you get to choose from what projects you want, rather than exactly. just be begging for work with here and there. Yeah. And yeah, day after tomorrow, it's a it's a good time. You just turn your brain off and just take it for what it is, because if you try to analyze it too much, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> yeah. And before that, obviously, Jake did movies like Bubble Boy, which he's iconic for, and Lovely and Amazing, The Good Girl. And then after The Day After Tomorrow, um, his his next biggest film was Brokeback Mountain, which is one of his best performances. And this was directed and released in 2006, directed by Ang Lee, written by Larry McMurdy and Diana Osana. story of a forbidden and secretive relationship between two cowboys and their lives over the years. And this is, it's a beautiful, heartbreaking film. Um... I just think about it and I start crying almost. And <laughs> well, we put it, I was getting uh, research and writing about this in my notes, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. I can't it. quit you. And uh, it's one of the best love films ever made, and it's guaranteed to bring you to tears. If you don't cry during this movie, you just are not a human being. And it's devastating, and it's it's a intense tragedy, one of the great modern tra- tragedies of the past uh, 50 years or so. And it's about uh, an impossible love and a love that will will never become um whole and and these two these two people they'll never be able to be together and they just find these moments these short bursts 
um, over the, over years to spend time together, and uh, it's very tragic. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger are stunning in this movie as Jack and Ennis, and they both got nominations. I think Heath Ledger should have definitely won. I mean, he was going up against uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Capote, which is a fantastic performance as well. But uh, when I think of Heath Ledger, I think this is right up there with the Joker performance. And this is also Jake Gyllenhaal's only Oscar nomination, and he's fantastic. And he doesn't have as juicy of a role as as Heath Ledger, but he is a very important character because uh, these two characters, they're very different, whereas uh, Jack Twist knows who he is, and he knows what he wants. Ennis is shut off and doesn't understand what his real nature is, and Jack is trying his best over years to try and get get Ennis to open up and try to accept who he is and maybe start an actual relationship with this, but um, Ennis is like a, a brick wall who won't give into it. Yeah, Ennis grows to hate the fact that he loves Jack so much, and mm-hmm. he tries his best. Oh my to, god, that's horrible! Yeah, he tries his best to bury it, and he won't live his truth openly with Jack. Who Jack his his great sin to to Ennis is being open to wanting to pursue this love and pursue this relationship, but you know they both have to just move on with their lives and try to get married and have a family. And one of the biggest tragedies of the film is at the end when um, Ennis tries to reconnect with Jack, only to find out that Jack's dead. And we have that that terrifying scene where Loreen is telling Ennis basically a lie that he died in a by getting hit by a car when mm-hmm. really he got beat to death by men who were obviously try, who killed him because he was a gay man in Wyoming. And this is in the 1960s where you know the the 20th century mid 20th century was not accepting of of homosexuality, and so that's why it's such an emotional film because it's Wyoming and rural America was no stranger to homophobia. Even when this film was made, it was still um, a problem and an issue in America, and that's why it was uh, very risky for these two actors to take these roles because it could have a considerable impact on their careers. You could you could argue, and um, when you're trying to be a leading man in Hollywood, you could lose audiences if you act in a role like this. And I think they both took risks because the story is so incredible and beautiful, and it is a story that should be told. And uh, obviously, things worked out for both of these actors because this film is. Uh, regarded as one of the best of the last 20 years. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the best place to get your posters online. Don't go on Amazon. Go on MoviePosters.com. 15% off. Use coupon code RAIDERS15. Again, RAIDERS15 for 15% off your order. Yeah, Brokeback Mountain is the reason why Heath Ledger's announcement of being cast as the Joker in the Dark Knight unfairly got him so much backlash and criticism. And it's mostly because people have trouble separating characters from actors. You know, they're, they're just normal people. These are just fictional characters that they're portraying on screen. And a lot of people, they didn't want the guy from Brokeback Mountain to be the Joker. And little did they know, because of their ignorance, Heath Ledger probably put on one of the most iconic performances you can say in the history of cinema with the Joker. And obviously, it's just a character in... You really have to separate the person from from the from the movie. And Heath Ledger's performance in Brokeback Mountain and The Joker are, are both exceptional. They actually became incredibly close friends while making this movie and became best friends. And Heath Ledger even made Jake Gyllenhaal his daughter's godfather, which Jake Gyllenhaal um, still uh, is active in that relationship with Heath Ledger's daughter, even years after his passing away. And as great as this film is, it it was nominated for lots of awards, but Crash beat it for Best Picture at the Oscars, which is probably considered 
one of the biggest snubs in history. And uh, clearly, if you look back on time, Brokeback's the much better movie. Not that Crash isn't a good movie, but Brokeback yeah. Mountain is an exceptional movie. It really is. Yeah. And uh, Brokeback Mountain has one of the most tragic, if not the most tragic endings of, of any film I've ever seen, where uh, Jack Twist has been dead and, and Ennis goes to see his family. And then he, he goes into Jack's room and he sees that inside Jack's closet are two shirts that are wrapped around one another and it's uh they're hanging on a clothes hanger and it's ennis's shirt and then jack's shirt is wrapped around it on the hanger and he asks if he can take it with him and he does and then the final image of this movie it just it's so powerful and emotional where um ennis opens the closet and, and we see that he's now keeping these two shirts but he's reversed it where uh, jack's shirt is on the inside and ennis's shirt is on, on on the outside of it on the clothes hanger and this is a like a metaphor for what Ennis always rejected of these two people being together as one, and he's always he always avoided it his entire life, and now he regrets it. And I think regret is a major theme for this film, and it's really really heartbreaking. I'm about to cry, <laughs> but yeah. So Brokeback Mountain. If you've never seen it, you gotta watch it. It's yeah. it's a really sensational film. Mark it, Wahlberg uh, was offered the role of Jack Twist. But he turned it down because he wasn't comfortable with the uh, sexual nature of the film itself. Jake Gyllenhaal's next big film was Jarhead in 2005, directed by Sam Mendes, uh, written by William Broyles Jr. Jarhead follows a young Marine on tour in the Middle East during the Gulf War. In this film, it's really a mix of like a coming-of-age war film for these young Marines and I think it's a very underrated war film in general, and it's kind of like Apocalypse Now, where it tackles the effects of war on young soldiers and points to attention, points attention to PTSD and just just what war does to people. This movie blended a lot of comedy into the themes of war, and it felt like it was like Full Metal Jacket, but if it was half comedy. And I think the strength of this movie is showing the showing what it was like for soldiers to live in these deserts for. Uh, months on end and what their day-to-day life was like because we don't really we're, we're familiar with there's so many vietnam war movies so many world war one world war two movies we've seen dozens of them so we're very familiar with them but we're not familiar familiar with wars that take place in deserts modern ones and so it was it was always fascinating to see this film to see now a bunch have been made but this was one of the first ones um this was 2005 so it was a long time ago and i think that this is one of Sam Mendes' best films, and Roger Deakins, this is their first collaboration together. That's why it looks so this good. This is their second collaboration together. He did Road to Perdition as well, so obviously with Deakins at the helm behind the camera, it's a gorgeous film and a stunning piece of work for both of them. And I read a lot of comments from a lot of Marines in this film, and they'll tell you that it's incredibly accurate to their day-to-day lives in terms of the vulgarity. You know, Marines, they, they did watch porn, they do watch porn, they fight amongst themselves, they... They both hate and love the Marine Corps. Um, there's a lot of like those anti-war conspiracy theorists that are Marines themselves. And so I think it really uh, addressed and, and really encapsulated the camaraderie of Marines that I, I don't have first experience of, but just reading what other Marines said about it or talked about it. And, you know, these young men and women have to cope with so much, like Anthony in the film. He, he's dealing with the distance from home, the dangers of war, 
the insecurity of his girlfriend cheating on him back home. <laughs> not to mention the, the extreme, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> not to mention the extreme boredom that these these soldiers face because they they were trained for war. They they get to what they think is going to be a war, and they have to sit around for like a hundred and something days, and for months on end, they're waiting and waiting for war. They're waiting to finally get their kills. They're waiting for some action, and this causes them to act impulsive and. And get depressed and go through these emotional train wreck and roller coaster situations. Yeah, that's why Peter Sarsgaard's character at the end of the film, when they're being um, sent home, and he just breaks down. He has this emotional wreck of a moment because he never got to fire his rifle. He never got to kill anyone. So these men and women, they've just been waiting every day. They've been expecting war. They've been expecting violence, and they've been expecting to use their their weapons. And then after six months and nothing happened. Uh, these these people, they they never got the release they were looking for. Yeah, this war lasted, I think, five days total, 100 hours or something like that. And Sarsgaard is actually Maggie Gyllenhaal's husband, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of funny. Yeah. And I think they probably met through this. No, they, they started dating in 2002. Oh, never mind, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't have a subscription to people like you. But uh, It's a great <laughs> magazine, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Sar- there's this emotional scene where Sarsgaard and uh, Anthony Jake Gyllenhaal's character, they're like a sniper team, mm-hmm. and they have... Their, their sights locked on um, an enemy, and they have him right in target, and they can take the hit, and they they get disapproval on, on the hit, and they don't get to fire their gun. And Sarsgaard has this, this emotional breakdown because all he wanted to do was finally get a kill. They just wanted to get this kill, and it's a very intense scene. And you, you want, there, there's not a ton of emotional moments in this film. That's one of the most telling for me, and I, I think Sarsgaard's a great actor. He's, he's a, like, we got to do an episode on underrated actors because he'd be on there. He's extremely underrated. He's never been nominated with, for an Oscar or anything. And this film also has a lot of, like, very fun, crazy scenes that we've never seen before, like uh, the scenes involving the Scorpion, Anthony getting branded by the other Marines. And I I think my favorite is when the Marines just play football with those, like, hazmat suits on because, like, what else is there to do? (laughs) And they're in the middle of the desert, and it's great. He shoots that POV with the mask on the camera. And then Gyllenhaal is great in this movie. Uh, And I think it's such a contrast from Brokeback. Uh, these are great movies to have back to back because it shows his range as an actor, and also he and Jamie Fox are fantastic together. It's a very funny relationship because Jamie Fox is obviously an incredible talent, uh, and he can be funny and intimidating and, and powerful at the same time. And it's just great seeing him as a staff sergeant berate Jake Gyllenhaal constantly. Yeah, he's great as this this lifelong soldier who'd rather spend years away from home and just completely living this this life as a soldier because it's what he truly loves. And he has that great scene saying, I love what I do. And so Jamie Foxx is great in this. And one of my favorite moments of the film is on the bus being welcomed home. And this Vietnam vet hops on the bus to kind of just bask in this coming home parade and party because he never got that kind of welcome home like like soldiers do now. So yeah. it, there are some really symbolic and emotional moments in this film that they're, I guess, kind of hidden. I think I think this movie either are love or hate it. Yeah. But either way, I like it a lot, and it's visually stunning, and, you know, Deacons is the man. Yeah, and Sam Mendes is one of our best directors. He made uh, the last two James Bond films. He made 1917, American Beauty. So this is uh, one part of his fantastic filmography. And next up... Um, Jake was in Zodiac in 2007, directed by David Fincher, but we've talked about this twice on this podcast. We're not going to go too much in depth on it. He plays Robert Graysmith, the, um, the cartoonist who helped solve a lot of the, the, um, the riddles and, and clues for the Zodiac and wrote the original Zodiac book. And 
If you want to hear us talk about Zodiac, go and listen to those episodes. We did a, a David Fincher spotlight, which is it's on. And also there's another episode. Serial killer. Yeah, serial killer episode where we yeah. talk about David Fincher and, and Zodiac. So we're not going to talk about it now because we don't want to be repetitive on, on this episode. But next up, well, I will say Jake Gyllenhaal, it's, a, it's one of his better performances. He uh, perfectly depicts uh, obsession in this film. Uh, and very few people have done it as well as him. And he becomes a character just completely overtaken by the story of the Zodiac. And if you haven't seen it, it's a little bit long of a movie, but it's great. And if you love serial killers, you have to watch this. And it's David Fincher. I mean, what else What else do you need in life besides the David Fincher movie? So check that out and listen to our breakdown on it on the David Fincher spotlight specifically. And um, Jake did a couple of really good movies in between that time. And then his next episode, the next one we're going to talk about, like he was in uh, Brothers, which is a really good movie, another war film um, with uh, Tobey Maguire and Natalie Portman. That's really good. He was also in Prince of Persia. And I love the video game, and I haven't seen the movie, but I think you said it, and you said not to watch it. I said, if you love the video game, it's a little disappointing of a movie because they they missed the mark with it could have been a lot better. Also, it was a little too, they cast a little too many white actors for the roles. Ben Kingsley is half Indian, um, but Gemma Arterton as this white girl as the 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 lead actress, they should have gone with someone who was Middle Eastern at the least, or or just Persian. Um, But the movie itself. It can be good. It has some glimmers of, of fun qualities and good action, but it's hard to adapt a video game. So I, it's a it's an area where... Uh, Detective Pikachu, that's good. <laughs> that's a good movie. It was good. That was good, but I would say it's great. Yeah. So we're still waiting for the great video game adaptation. I get that, yeah. Um, and then he also did Love and Other Drugs, which is a romantic comedy he did with Anne Hathaway. I like that movie. That movie it's, made it's, a lot of money. It's very charming. It's funny. It's romantic. It's um, good. They're really great together. Uh, obviously, they've been in a couple of mil- they films, so they have a lot of chemistry. And if you like rom-coms, that's definitely one to check out. But next up, we're going to talk about Source Code, which came out in 2011. This oh, was yeah. directed by Duncan Jones, who, again, we talked about with Moon, is David Bowie's son. Great director. Written by Ben Ripley. It's about a soldier who wakes up in someone else's body and discovers he's part of an experimental government program to find the bomber of a commuter train within eight minutes. And again, this film, kind of like Donnie Darko, we're dealing with you know alternate realities and dimensions maybe, and I think it's an incredibly underrated sci-fi film. Um, and it's a great blend of, of those aspects of, of the genre, of those genres, as well as mystery. And we're dealing with the themes, again, of virtual realities, alternate realities. It's so fun. Exactly. And this is one of my favorite sci-fi movies. It really is. And if you haven't seen it, check it out because it's fantastic. It's a brilliant concept, a brilliant story. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays Coulter, who is an Air Force pilot who, before the film starts, he suffered through a horrific crash and his body has been destroyed and they have... The, the military is keeping him alive through life support, and they've uh, used his brain to enter the simulation. And the simulation was created with the help of the minds of the passengers of this train who died on a bombing. And the simulation is able to gather the memories of all these people, all these victims, for the last eight minutes of their life. So they're able to recreate the scene of the bombing inside this train. And so now they've put Coulter into the simulation to try and figure out who the bomber is because they want to prevent more bombs from going off because it's going to be a series of uh, attacks on innocent people. And so Coulter um, has to go through this Groundhog Day situation where he has eight minutes to try and find out what he can, then the train explodes, and then it starts over. And he keeps reliving the, the simulation over and over again until he eventually gathers enough clues and figures out who the actual bomber is. And since he's playing another person, he's actually 
in the mind and body of a teacher who is on that train. And so there's that great shot where he's looking in the mirror and he finally realizes that he's not himself. He's not Jake Gyllenhaal. He's super handsome. Yeah, he's now, like, what a disappointment to be yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal oh, and man. wake up not Jake Gyllenhaal. No, no, that must be the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's he's also, he starts to accept his mission and what he is and who he is in, in this reality or the simulation. But he's also kind of testing it and has ideas of, of why is it only eight minutes that I can survive or, or can I live past this bombing? What what happens if I survive this bombing or if I stop the bombing? And also he's developing fam, uh, feelings for uh, this woman who the teacher is friends with on the train. And it gets to the point where he doesn't want her to die and he wants to try and find a way to stop this. And while this is happening, he's also discovering what happened to him in the real world in that he was killed. He was nearly killed in a, in a plane crash. Yeah, and he's communicating with Vera Farmiga's character, who who plays as like commanding officer, and she's really great in this too. And she, you know, she's got a job to do as well, but she also feels for Coulter and starts to empathize with him and in, in his situation because this is a pretty tough, tough thing to be doing. Yeah, and on top of that, Jeffrey Wright plays her superior, and Jeffrey Wright is such an underrated actor. Talk about, we gotta do an underrated actors episode. Yeah, we, we got really two should. so far in this episode. And he he plays Vera Farmiga's superior officer, and uh, his plan is that once Coulter can figure out who the bombing is, who the, who the bomber is, they're gonna uh, erase Coulter's memory so they can put him into another source code simulation in the future and so he wants to keep Coulter alive indefinitely to keep carrying out these simulation missions with his memory being wiped every time and then Vera Farmiga's character is struggling with the idea that that's inhumane and Coulter finally talks her into uh, letting her letting her into shutting off his life support um, once he's able to, to solve the mystery but he's also at the same time solving the mystery and also dealing with the idea in his head that can this existence of him in this simulation continue? Is it actually like a computer program or is it a different reality? And I love the way this film ends is when he figures out who the bomber is and, and um, is able to relay the information to the superiors and, and he convinces Vera Farmiga to put him back into the simulation one more time because even though he figured out who the bomber was, the bomb still went off and the train exploded. And so... Coulter wants one more chance to stop it from happening and see what happens and see if he can save this woman's life. And so Vera Farmiga agrees that she's going to put him in the simulation one more time and then cut off his life support in the real world. Yeah, and as he does this, you know, the the world after the eight minutes, the bomb doesn't go off. It continues, and it ends with that with them meeting they, up. and they, they have a date. They have a date, and what he discovers is that uh, the source code has been creating alternate dimensions and now he is going to be he's going to live this new life in this new alternate reality and it's it, he discovers that it is real because he's able to text Vera Farmiga's character and so we learn that it actually did work yeah i love this movie duncan jones he's an awesome director i probably won't watch the world of warcraft movie he made but i think he's underrated in I'm I'm excited to see what he has coming for the future, and this this is one of Jake's most underrated movies for sure. Hundred percent agree. And then Jake did End of Watch in 2012. This film was written and directed by David Ayer. It's a shot documentary style. This film follows the daily grind of two young police officers in L.A. who are partners and friends, and what happens when they meet criminal forces greater than themselves. And I think this is one of Ayer's um, best movies. It's this movie floored me the first time I watched it. Obviously, it's an over-the-top example of the daily lives of police officers in America. But if you've ever been on a ride-along, which I highly recommend you do so, you can really understand the job of a police officer. 
and get an understanding of what it's like. This movie really does an accurate job of, of trying to represent that because a lot of the time, cops, they're just sitting in their cars driving around just, you know, waiting for Shooting orders. shit. Or just, you know, they're patrolling. So, they, they yeah. yeah, they're just talking shit and just goofing off and <laughs> in the car and uh, just roasting each other and they're bickering. And yeah. it's, they spend a lot of time in the car. Yeah, this, this film shows the uh, camaraderie and uh, brotherhood or sisterhood that uh, having a partner can bring because, like you said, when in between... Um, Tasks, cops, they're spending eight hours a day in a car right next to someone else, six inches away. So uh, I ima- imagine spending six inches. That's a small yeah. cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> what do they got, a razor Hey, scooter? this is my hypothetical <laughs> imagination, okay? Your cops are driving Mini Coopers. Yeah, they're <laughs> going to be eco-friendly, bro. Let <laughs> me get that high gas mileage. <laughs> and so if you spend that much time with someone rubbing shoulders you're gonna get to become very close and they'll become like a sibling to you and this film shows it with jake gyllenhaal and michael pena's characters and i think michael another underrated actor this michael pena jake just loves to work with underrated actors we're changing this episode title to underrated actors that work with jake gyllenhaal <laughs> <laughs> it's more accurate he's become uh, much more successful with uh, being in the ant-man movies but michael pena is a great actor michael pena and jake gyllenhaal have uh, such great chemistry some of the best chemistry you've ever seen it's in very it. funny yeah they're they really seem as though they've been spending day in day out together for years and uh, most of their dialogue is improvised and it's so funny and vulgar and they really do seem like they're brothers it's a really good concept where jake gyllenhaal's character um brian taylor he's an officer obviously but he's also attaching these cameras to his vest and like kind of like he's got a project he's working on and making like the documentary style film of what it's like to be a cop and it really just sets up the stage for the film because the film bounces around from that to like actual yeah it's a combination storyline yeah with uh, him and his relationship with Anna Kendrick and Michael Pena and his family, um, which is it, there's a lot of emotion in this film and it really it's really relatable especially for anyone who knows cops or or, or has dated a cop or is friends with cops or has a cop in their family yeah and obviously there are you know over the top example of like this gang going against these cops and you yeah know, there's the, kind of a rivalry yeah, going on. Uh, Cops like this, they wouldn't be investigating a crime like these, like this, or uh, involved in human trafficking uh, investigations. Um, but uh, it's it's a movie. They take liberties with uh, reality, but otherwise, it's still a great film. And I think the combination of the body cam footage as well as the police car footage adds an element of reality to the the film itself, where it puts you into uh, into the film watching things these things have unfold and these events take place, making it feel like it is real. And a lot of the body cam footage, uh, pretty much most all of it is filmed by the actors. They strapped cameras to them. So it's not like it's a stunt person holding the gun with the selfie cam on their chest. It's it's actually Jake Gyllenhaal or Michael Pena. And I think it was a great element to add to this film. I think it's a great action movie. And I absolutely bawled my eyes out at the end of this film. It completely shattered me watching, obviously spoilers alerts, uh, Brian give that speech at Mike's funeral at the end of the film. It's it's really heavy. It's some of the best uh, acting I've seen Jake Gyllenhaal do in this scene, and I I like get teary eyed just thinking of it because man, it just knocks you back. Yeah, it's heartbreaking because you really grow to love these characters and their relationship with one another, and also you feel like they're real people because you see like you see like their wedding and um, their relationships and the people in their lives. So it's not just the scenes that are involved with the main plot of the film, you really get to see their lives get fleshed out in this film. And so when Michael Pena's character does die, 
it is absolutely heart-wrenching. Yeah, it's one of the best modern uh, police films uh, probably ever made. And next up, Jake did Prisoners in 2013. But again, we we did 45, 50 minutes on Prisoners <laughs> in our Prisoners versus Gone Girl episode. So if you want to hear us break that film down, go check that out. Um, obviously, Jake's performance in this as Loki, Detective Loki, is, is phenomenal. It might be my favorite Joke John Hall role. And it might be my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal movie in general because I can agree with that. It's a pretty powerful movie, and obviously, I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen it. But definitely go check out our analysis on it for sure. Yeah, it's an incredible film, very underrated. Uh, I think uh, because it was rated R, not that not that many people saw it. Um, but it is a fantastic film. Denis Villeneuve, um, who made Blade Runner 2049 and a bunch of other great movies, made this film, and this is one of Jake's great performances. Again, he completely transformed. And created a, a cop that you've never seen on screen before. A new kind of detective. And it, it, he's absolutely fantastic. And Ryan Gosling actually auditioned for this role in Prisoners. But uh, he lost out to it to Jake Gyllenhaal. Although Villeneuve did work with Gosling for Blade Runner 2049. So, I mean, if you beat out Ryan Gosling for a movie, you must be pretty fucking good. Yeah, and Denis and Jake actually worked on the next film they did, both of them, for uh, for together in 2009 with, with Enemy which I've been wanting to talk about for a while because I love that movie. And obviously we'll, we'll give it more respect and spend like a, a 30, 40 minute breakdown on, on another episode because it deserves to be spoke, talked about in, in depth. And um, we could do like a confusing movies episode. Yeah. <laughs> or like, what the fuck did that mean episode? <laughs> and uh, this came out in 2014, directed by Denis Villeneuve, written by Javier Goulon. And it follows Adam Bell played by Jill who is a glum and disheveled history professor who seems disinterested even in his beautiful girlfriend. And when watching a movie after the recommendation of a colleague, Adam spots a double of himself, an actor named Anthony Clare, and decides to track him down. And the identical men meet, and their lives become bizarrely and irrevocably intertwined. And this movie is a mind F and a half. Oh yeah, it's one of the greatest mind Fs of modern cinema. And uh, there are a lot of interpretations of this movie you can look at it in, in a lot of ways especially uh the the idea of uh, whether anthony and adam are the same person or whether they're different people or maybe they were there they are different people who spawned from the same person there's a lot of crazy ways to look at it and I, I, the way i look at it is that so i think that anthony is the real character of this movie and uh, he is the the version that is an actor seems very successful and has the pregnant girlfriend and I think that he created Adam and he lives as Adam in his free time because he's trying to escape his life and he's, he feels drowned and he feels trapped in his life with his girl, his pregnant girlfriend and his mother. And so he's creating this alternate identity which he lives out whenever he can. And Adam is a professor at a college, but I think Anthony is actually the professor and the actor. And then he just has this because his apart, Adam's apartment's empty except for a bed and some stuff in the kitchen. So it's not like he's living there full time. And I think he's escaping uh, the trappings of his life and becoming Adam. I think it's the re reverse. I see Adam as the main character and then Anthony is the escape where Anthony's, you know, this, this actor, maybe his, his young uh, ambitions of being an actor and the motorcycle riding and being free and doing whatever he wants. Whereas he's trapped at home as Adam and in his eyes, he's trapped because his his wife or girlfriend is pregnant now, and with his with his relationship with his mother, and obviously we have this the symbolism of these spiders and these webs, and I think those those represent to to Anthony or to Adam 
whoever you want to say, if you think they're the same person, like the oppression or not, I think oppression is maybe too bold of a word to say, or like maybe for his perspective, the trapping of, of his girlfriend being pregnant and being trapped in that relationship that he doesn't want to be in. And that's not to say, not to say it in yeah, a negative way. That's not to say that women are like that. It's just his perspective yeah. and his life. I totally agree. And I think that, um, cause it's his wife and his mother. They're both, um, his mother's overbearing. His 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 wife isn't overbearing, but he seems to be very unhappy. So I we we completely disagree on this movie, which is fine. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, which is fine. I and I think that by the end of the film, Anthony dies in that car crash with the uh, with Adam's girlfriend. But what's happened? And then Adam goes to Anthony's wife to the apartment, and they have uh, intimate. Uh, they're they're intimate together, and then there's this scene where. Uh, she asks him to stay because he said he he thinks he should leave because he's really Adam and he slept with Anthony's wife. But what's really happening, I think, is that Adam is reverting back to Anthony and accepting his life again. Or he could just be giving into his carnal desires. And I think that his wife, to an extent, if you think that Anthony and Adam are the same person, obviously there's the the wedding ring and the and one of them has the mark, one of them doesn't. So you can say that that proves that they're different people. But I just think that I think we both think they're the same person, obviously. Yeah. But I think it's also his wife is is kind of keeping up with this psychosis because you know she's a very vulnerable person in this film. She's pregnant. She's she's pre- she's due pretty soon. She depends on um, her husband or her boyfriend to um, help support her during the pregnancy and and is intending that he helps support her after the pregnancy and after the birth. And so I think she's feels so vulnerable and scared that she has to she's putting up with Anthony and his and his psychosis of his of delusions being a, of being another person. That's why, like when they're sitting next to each other at the bench, she pretends like she doesn't really know who he is, even though it's clearly him. Yeah. And but I also think that so at the end of the film, uh, spoilers this is the craziest part of the movie. One of the craziest parts of any movie is Adam now. Re- I think he's uh, accepting his life as Anthony and, and entering this home again. But although from the perspective of watching this for the first time, you think that Adam is taking Anthony's life over now that Anthony's dead. Um, he he walks through the hall and he and he looks into one of the rooms and then his wife is now this gigantic tarantula. Rather than acting out in fear or surprise, Adam just kind of sighs and like, oh, oh man. So I think that what's happening is as Anthony, he hates his life with his with his with his pregnant wife, and he's trying to escape the trappings of 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 this woman in his life. And then when he, as Adam, he discovers that he's probably best if he goes back to his wife and embraces that. And then once he's embraced it, he sees that this is still a problem in his life, and that's why he doesn't act surprised when he sees the spider. And again, this is the perspective of the character. We're not saying that women in relationships and marriage and pregnancies are traps. This is just the perspective of the character, and he sees this relationship and this pregnancy as a trap for him to be stuck for what he thinks will be a trap. And again, spiders, spider web, trap. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, spiders trap insects in their webs. So that's that that's basically the metaphor of the spider at the end and mm-hmm. you know the webbing of of the city because there are over um, I mean larger symbolism in the film in terms of like totalitarianism, yeah, political oppression, vibes, dictatorships yeah, yeah. and so we'll get we'll break this down more, you know, especially what he talks about in his philosophy classes. Mm-hmm. So this will deserve another episode more in depth, but that's about all we're going to talk about for this film. <laughs> yeah. It's a wild movie if you haven't seen it. It's on Netflix. I recommend checking it out. It's 
absolutely mind-bending. And then Jake did the film Nightcrawler, which came out in 2014, written and directed by Dan, written and directed by Dan Gilroy. This film is about character Louis Bloom, a con man desperate for work, muscles into the world of L.A. crime journalism. He blurs the line between observer and participant to become the star of his own story. And this is an incredible performance by Jake Gyllenhaal. Again, this guy, I think more later in his career, we'll talk about, he, he just physically transforms into different characters, and he's just taking that more to heart. Like this film, he, he dropped from 180 pounds, he dropped 30 pounds from his frame by... Minimizing his caloric intake, obviously, running 15 miles to the set every day, uh, riding a standing bicycle on set. He would, he said he would eat flavored gum, like luxury flavored gum, to try to trick his brain that he was eating real food. And so he really created this like gaunt, almost starved looking character because he wanted to try to. He saw this character, Lewis Bloom, as a coyote, you know, this nocturnal animal just looking for vulnerable prey and just gorging on whatever he could find. Nocturnal animal, pretty funny. Lou Bloom is easily Gyllenhaal's most fascinating character in his filmography. He's just incredible in this role. And Lou is a, a great antihero because we follow him on this film and we kind of root for him in a lot of ways, but he's a horrible person. Um, yeah, for example, the opening scene is, is a terrific introduction to the character where he's in the middle of he's stealing materials to sell like like uh, metal fencing and, and copper and copper piping and and sewer caps manhole caps and and he's caught by a security guard and it's this great moment where Lou is very polite and 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 is great at acting unawares and and feigning ignorance and he uses this to his advantage by portraying himself as someone who's ignorant and weak but in reality he's very strong and em lacks empathy and he's very dangerous um when the guards when the security guard is um, unawares, Lou attacks him to steal his watch because he sees the, the man's watch and this is like, oh, I want that watch to, to have. It doesn't even seem like he's worried about being arrested. He's like, yeah, oh, look at that not watch. Not at all. Yeah. So a very dangerous character. And the, they cut this scene short where he's just fighting the guy and obviously he's going to beat him up because the, when the scene ends, the next cut is he's driving his car and he has the security guard's watch. So they, we don't really see what happens, but I think that Lou killed the security guard in the scene off screen. It's possible. I mean, maybe not because he wouldn't want to uh, avert attention to the situation. But we then learn that, you know, this guy is a complete con man because even though he's selling stolen goods to this guy at this at this uh, junkyard, or whatever you want to call it, he still is trying to get a job from this guy. And he's <laughs> kind of delusional at his behavior and doesn't he doesn't realize the kind of horrible person he is and the kind of criminal he is. And this movie, it reminds me so much of American Psycho every time oh, I yeah, see it. Oh, yeah, you're right. Because it, it gets it gets more and more disturbing like with each minute. Yeah. But as an audience member, you can't help but enjoy what you're watching in a weird, sadistic way, no matter how messed up it becomes and all the crimes that Lou commits. And, and you kind of bask in like the accidental comedy that comes about from his actions. Yeah, and Lou is absolutely... He's obsessed with success and, and finding success and... Although he knows all, all sorts of ways to make money, like stripping fences and trying to sell raw materials, and he's a good thief, but still he's he's very poor, and like his apartment is empty, he doesn't have much, and also very strange, like his his bedding is he has like dinosaur bedding, and uh, he has he has pet fish, and he just ha is a very strange person. Uh, his apartment's pretty much empty, so 
uh, all he's focused on is trying to find a, a, a path that would find him as much success as possible. And kind of by accident, he finds the perfect job for him, and that's to work as a stringer, which is a person who who, who films uh, newsworthy incidents such as like car crashes, crime scenes, um, and they they sell it to news outlets to to run on air. And at first, he's very uh, inexperienced, but because of his nature, his lack of empathy, and his willingness to do whatever it takes, he quickly rises up the ranks in this industry. Yeah, he uses his low moral compass to interact with the environments that he's in and starts to contaminate in a way the, the crime scenes to make them more beneficial for his purpose of, of making the most valuable piece of entertainment or video content that he can to sell to these news outlets. And it seems like he finds this purpose in life and he definitely does. He crosses the boundary every scene. He's doing something illegal almost, it seems. And, and he has no bounds and he, he doesn't care what he does. And he even sacrifices his, his employee played by Riz Ahmed and Riz Ahmed's awesome in this movie. I think this was his breakout yeah. breakout role because this he got a bunch of roles. And the night of the yeah. HBO miniseries. Yeah, and he's so good in this movie and he just prays again like a coyote, he prays on the vulnerable to gorge on whatever he can get out of it. Well, the thing with Lou is not that he prays, but he's able to defend himself whenever he's threatened. And so he he's threatened in three different parts in this film by other characters. So first he's threatened by uh, Joe, the other stringer who's very successful, and after he, he declines Joe's offer to join his crew, Joe becomes uh, uh, very successful with his two vans, and he beats him to a few different crime scenes. And this puts this this threatens Lou's livelihood and his career because if he, if Joe is going to get dominance over all of the stories and all of the uh, all of the uh, all of the incidents, then uh, he then Lou is not going to be able to find success, and so. Uh, he takes care of Joe by disconnecting his anti-lock brakes, which causes Joe to crash into a telephone pole. And then, ironically, Lou ends up filming him. And then the next person that threatens him is Nina, doesn't want to uh, adhere to Lou's demands that they have an intimate and sexual relationship in exchange for him bringing his stories and his video to her. And he's able to take the power in the situation by... Uh, understanding the desperation she has in her career and how important he is as an asset to the news station. And so he pretty much blackmails her into giving him what he wants. And then he's finally threatened by Rick, who understands that Lou is finding a lot of success and he demands to want more money. And then when Lou doesn't want to give him money, Rick threatens to tell the police about what Lou has been doing with these crime scenes, especially with the with the ongoing crime scene that they're about to film. And now this threat causes Lou to uh, to set things in motion that allow Rick to get killed. And so Lou is this uh, master manipulator who he does try to do things right by characters, but when they threaten him, he is extremely dangerous. It's a great overall plot of the film. Good job. I don't even know what else to say. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But this this film has it, it visually it looks great. I mean, there's some great shots of these car chases and there's this awesome uh, uh, one take of of the 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 charger. It's like oh, almost yeah. like a Jack Reacher shot. It's really cool. Yeah, Robert Ellswich shot it and he did There Will Be Blood. He won the Oscar for. Uh, he's done all most of Paul Thomas Anderson's films and he did a few Mission Impossible movies. He's one of the best there is. And he's his Godfather, right? Yeah, he's Jake Gyllenhaal's Godfather. 
which is pretty cool. But I, I love Nightcrawler, and I, I, we will spend some more time on it some other time. Um, another episode, maybe I think we were thinking like an anti-hero episode yeah. or like creepy guy movie episode, <laughs> something like that. We we gotta figure something out to get Nightcrawler in there because it is a great movie. It really is. Hundred percent. I think it's on Netflix now, so check it out. Yep. And then Jake in 2015 made Southpaw, directed by Antoine Fuqua, screenwritten by Kurt Sutter. A champion boxer fights to get his daughter back from child protective services as well as to revive his professional career after a fatal incident sends him on a rampant path of destruction. And Jake Gyllenhaal, probably his most transformative role physically. Um, this guy hit the gym hard for this role for six months. He trained six hours a day, and Fuqua trained with him too to you know help him get into the mindset of being a boxer because I think Fuqua, you know, it was kind of like a Zack Snyder approach to when he made 300 and he trained with those guys to, in a way, be a leader and, and show like that. If, I wouldn't ask you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Yeah, exactly. And so they put in the work together and Jake was in crazy shape for this movie. This guy is jacked and ripped out of his tree. And I know Eminem <laughs> was originally <laughs> attached to start on this role, but he opted out. I'm sure that once he saw the training schedule by Fuqua, he's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to make another album. I'll be out of here. <laughs> you want me to train how much? <laughs> six hours a day for six months. You know how much money I'm worth? <laughs> I, I got 500 mil in the bank. I'm good. I'll make two songs and we'll call it a I'll day. Produ- how about that? I'll produce the film. Here's here's five mil. Just put my name on the credits. <laughs> um, yeah, they actually wanted this film to be kind of like a unofficial sequel to 8 Mile where it would be uh, kind of the same character as a boxer. Um, but obviously, I think... Uh, Jimmy Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> Jake is uh, phenomenal in this role. Uh, everything's different about him. Mannerisms, his speaking, uh, his his look. And he plays a, a great uh, character. Uh, Rachel McAdams is fantastic for the short, pa- short amount of time she's in this in this movie. Forrest Whitaker is fantastic. And the girl who 50 plays... 50 Cent is... Eh. 50 Cent is 50 Cent. <laughs> And um, the girl who plays uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's daughter is really fantastic. I think this was her first movie, and she's been a few things since then. But um, that's essentially the story is his relationship with his daughter because after his wife is killed, uh, he goes on this downward spiral and destroys his life. And um, he's forced uh, to give up custody of his daughter, and she becomes estranged from him because of his behavior. And the entire it's very emotional and he has to work his way up to not just becoming a contender again, but to to gain the, his his daughter back in his life. Yeah, and uh, I think it's an underrated boxing movie, and it's an emotional roller coaster. I think I cried like three times the first time I saw this movie. And we see the massive ups and highs of this professional athlete, and also the depressing lows of this character. And we do get some of the boxing cliches, of course, which you almost you can't avoid these boxing cliches. Even Creed has them. Yeah, is what it is. It's part of the it's part of the genre. But I mean, Rachel McAdams' character. Is, it's heartbreaking for this film. Then Naomi, Naomi Harris is, is great in this movie too where she oh, plays. Oh yeah, she's in, she's in charge of the foster home and in charge yeah. of his daughter and her 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 life there while she's away from her father because Billy Hope needs to he needs to get back and work and he lost all of his money because he, you know, he spent it all and then had some poor contract decisions that he made and so it's really just a a, a redemption story at the core. And you can't help but feel feel for Billy Hope and his struggle and and getting his career back and getting his daughter back and getting some semblance of his life back because the love that he had for his wife was immense 
And it's almost they almost like kind of insinuate that he might have loved his his wife more than he loved his daughter. Not that he didn't love his daughter, but he the love that he had for his wife was was so much. And they grew up together in foster homes and in the same neighborhoods, and they have that matching tattoo on their necks. And it's just really emotional when she when he loses her, and you just can't help but root for him as he's fighting to get his life back. Yeah, and then when he finally does, and he gets his daughter back, it's just there's that moment after the the last fight, and then he and his daughter hug and. He's so he's such a good actor. He just sells it on his face how how much he went through and he finally has his daughter back and it's really really emotional and and devastating and hopeful and it's a it's a very good boxing movie. I think one of my favorite parts of this film is like it shows the actual destruction that boxing has on a person's body even though Billy Hope wins the fight in the first in the opening of the film, his body is a mess. Yeah. And, like, you don't really see boxing movies. It takes a long time to recover. Like, usually they show just the guy with the bruises on his face and a swollen eye, but Billy the Ho- Billy is a mess in this film. And it's it's really accurate to even though you want to fight, you're still going to be a mess. And then Jake made Everest, which we're not going to talk about. It's a cool movie. but um, It's a good movie. Yeah. It's a good movie to check out. It's on, got a great cast. On a movie night. And then um, Demolition, which... I haven't seen. I think it made like $4 million box office. I love Demolition. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, it's he, It's he. I think it's one of his best performances. It's a very underrated movie. And it's actually the same director who did Wild with Reese Witherspoon, and he also made um, Big Little Lies. Great director. Dallas Buyers Club, same director. Um, and Gyllenhaal plays a, a man who whose wife has died, but he doesn't feel anything. And he's trying to make sense of who he is and what his life is and what it's what it's become and why he doesn't why he's not feeling anything. And then he discovers that he was never really being true to himself. And he, it, it's about learning and accepting who you are and uh, trying to come to terms with grief. And it's an absolutely fantastic movie. And then in 2016, he starred in Nocturnal Animals, which was written and directed by Tom Ford. Tom Ford. This guy can design suits and direct movies. And like, glasses. Man, this guy's got a lot of talent because this is a very good movie, and I think he's, it's his second movie, right? Yeah, his first film was A Single Man with Colin Firth, with his, which is fantastic. Uh, it was Colin Firth got nominated for an Oscar for it. Um, it came out a while ago. I think it was 2011. But uh, Tom Ford, uh, very talented guy. I mean, not only is he one of the greatest fashion designers in history but he's an excellent director very very fine craftsman um his his movies he's made two so far but they're both very good it's about a wealthy art gallery owner who's played by amy adams who's haunted by her ex-husband's novel a violent thriller she interprets as a symbolic revenge tale and this movie is kind of like an, an ultimate revenge story without anything like without causing harm to somebody yeah except for emotional harm and it's an excellent ensemble cast. I mean, Jake and Amy Adams. Then we have Michael Shannon, Aaron Taylor Johnson, um, Army Hammers in this movie. So there's a ton of great actors in this movie. There's so many great performances. And this movie, it's it's bold and it's dark and disturbing. Yeah, and this movie is uh, uh, essentially told in three different perspectives. So not only is there a story within a story, because throughout the film, as Amy Adams' character is reading the novel, we're seeing the novel play out as a different movie. So... But there's also a third story. So so the film takes place in three different storylines. There is uh, the novel, which uh, follows Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Tony, written by Edward, the ex-husband of Susan. And then we see Susan in real time as she's reading the novel. And then we see flashbacks of Susan 
and Edward's relationship from first meeting to their dissolution of their marriage. So there's three different storylines going on in this film. It's a little complex, but it is a very good movie, very well written, very well directed. And Jake plays two characters. He plays the ex-husband of Susan, and then he also plays the, the lead character in the manuscript that he sent Susan, and which is actually, it's a lot of fun, I'm sure, for an actor to play two roles, and he kills both of them. Yeah, and essentially, uh, Susan left Edward without really giving the marriage a chance. She wasn't a very good wife to him. She wasn't very supportive, especially of his writing. And she left him without... And his main problem with her leaving was they never really tried to work on it, the marriage. They never... She just kind of like gave up on it and cheated on him and left him so she could marry another man who ironically is cheating on her now in the real at the present time. So uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Edward, um, obviously felt a great amount of uh, disdain for her because she she didn't give them a real chance and abandoned him, he felt like. So he wrote this book um, as a way of essentially getting revenge on her, not in real life, but in the book. Because in the book, it, the story follows um, Tony, played by Hall, and his he has a wife, played by Isla Fisher, who looks just like Amy Adams. That's why she was cast because they look so much alike, Isla Fisher and her, and they have a daughter, and the family is um, stopped by three criminals, and the Tony's wife and daughter are raped and murdered by these three men, and then the plot of the film, the rest of the story of the novel is that Tony and Michael Shannon's character, the, the police officer, they years later they track down these criminals and, and attempt to kill them. But what's happened in the novel is Tony is killing his wife in the novel, as a way of getting revenge on her. So that's like him getting out his retribution, not in the real world, but by through fiction. Did she abort their baby too? After Susan left him, she aborted their baby. Yeah, I watched this drunk, but I still remember some a bigger yeah. amount of it. Yeah. And the ultimate... So again, this is a revenge film. And this film in the movie ends in a great scene where he invites her out to, to lunch and she obviously... Picked- well, so she invites him to dinner. Okay. So, because she's discovering as she's reading the novel and Susan is looking back thinking back on the memories with edward she's like feels guilty and remorseful and maybe wants to try to rekindle their relationship because she's very unhappy no matter how successful she is she's in a, in a horrible marriage where her husband's cheating on her and doesn't care about her and she just wants out of it ironically and so now she's she has invited edward to meet for dinner because maybe she, they can make things work out again yeah and he agrees but out of revenge he stands her up and basically what he's saying is that this is this book and standing you up at this restaurant is basically a metaphor of, of what was taken from him as well as he wants her to just rot in this emptiness that she has in her life. Because her life, despite her being successful, she's just materialistic and has nothing. And then leaving her alone at the restaurant is what Susan did to their marriage. She abandoned him and left him alone without ever putting in the effort to try and work it out and fix it. And so he's doing it to her now. And he's also telling her that uh, what she did to him is unforgivable, and there will never be uh, a second chance. Yeah, I think Tom Ford does a great job just like kind of connecting, but also not connecting these three storylines and just making them kind of flow so well together, which can probably be a very difficult task. Yeah, and I think a, a highlight of this film is Aaron Taylor Johnson. He's absolutely fantastic as the villain. Underrated actor yeah, alert. Underrated actor. <laughs> number, number four. And uh, he actually won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. He's awesome. Yeah, he's great. 
And then in 2017, Jake Gyllenhaal made Life, which was directed by Daniel Espinosa, written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. A team of scientists aboard the International Space Station discover a rapidly evolving life form that caused extinction on Mars and now threatens all life on Earth. This movie is really cool. It's one of my favorite endings, twist endings I've seen Great in ending. years. We won't reveal the ending because if you haven't seen it, it's, it's amazing. It's a terrifying film. Uh, it's really unique and interesting, but I think a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with it. Either you like it a lot or you hate it, but it also might be the best-looking astronaut crew ever. <laughs> this crew is very beautiful. The men and women on this crew are all model-type I mean, people. We got Jake. We got Rebecca Ferguson. We got Ryan Reynolds, Hiroku Samanda. I mean, we got some good-looking peeps. Yeah, the world movie stars are very beautiful. <laughs> but um, I love the genre of uh, horror, horror sci-fi. It's been done and tried a lot and oftentimes doesn't work, but when it does work, it's really great, and I think it works in this film. Although this movie didn't make that much money, I think it's really underrated. It's very intriguing, uh, very terrifying, and ultimately it's a monster movie, just like the original Alien movie, and the monster in this movie, which they named Calvin, is fantastic. It's a new, very unique and uh, fantastic creature design uh, for this alien, and essentially, this is this is an alien. It's an unstoppable force that they don't understand, and letting it on the ship was a mistake. It kind of reminds me of Venom in a way, yeah. a little bit the yeah. way the way it moves and looks and can kind of in, interacting with matter and everything. But uh, it's it's a a gripping movie. This keeps you in the entire time, and I think it's intriguing. And there's not many films, spoiler, where Ryan Reynolds gets killed halfway through. Horribly, which, too. Which blew me away. This alien messes him up. And um, you learn to, at first, you're so curious about Calvin, and you're like, oh, this is so cool. And then, you know, it's just, it's kind of like Alien, but on a smaller scale. But then you grow to obviously hate Calvin and, and what he's doing to the crew. And I, mean, I, I can't, I don't want to reveal the ending because it's it's that good and it's that that much of a twist. You don't think we should reveal it? Yeah, let's not. We'll talk about this another time. We'll do a sci-fi episode with life in it. But it does have one of my favorite endings of the last several years. It's a fantastic sci-fi movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's a great horror sci-fi film. Then Jake did a bunch of movies uh, like The Sister's Brother, Wildlife, Velvet Buzzsaw. But we're going to finish up with Spider-Man Far From Home, which came out in 2019. Um this was a unique Marvel film because it was the first one to come out and take place after Tony Stark's death from Avengers Infinity War. And I think Jake was a great choice for Mysterio because he obviously has many qualities that we talked about earlier that you could see in a superhero, which means he's perfect to play the supervillain Mysterio, which is a complete facade. Yeah, we initially think that, well, I walked in this movie thinking that Mysterio would be the villain of the movie. And then as you're watching the first half of this movie, you're like, oh, Mysterio is an ally. He becomes a friend to Peter Parker. Well, that's if you don't know Mysterio's lore. Yeah, I don't. So I don't know much about him as a character in the books, in the comic books. And he seems to be like a, a trustworthy person from another dimension who is trying to help save the world with these crazy attacks that are happening throughout Europe. And then and then we learn that, like you said, Mysterio is all facade and in Gyllenhaal's character is actually named Beck, and he is a former Stark employee uh, who, along with a bunch of other disgruntled employees, are trying to get back at Stark by stealing the tech that he gave to uh, Peter Parker, which are these glasses that uh, can command uh, this gigantic force of drones. And yeah, Jake's performance is fantastic in this movie. It's the best part of the movie. It's a very solid sequel. 
um for for the first version for the it's the very solid sequel to the first third version of spider-man <laughs> <laughs> um again like you if you go into this film completely unaware of the lore and who Mysterio actually is. You think that he's a protagonist the whole time, and Jake sells you on that. Um, like all Marvel movies, the action's fantastic. The script is well-written. It's hilarious. Zendaya's great in it. Holland's great in it. The, the characters are, are so well-written. They, they have so much chemistry, and it's an emotional journey and a satisfying ending. And, you know, Jake's, like we all knew he would be, was a great supervillain. I, I really like the suit in this movie because it, it went away from those Iron Man-esque suits from the Avengers movies. I, I felt like it was a little too much like Iron Man, the, the Spider-Man suits. And so they went back to a more classic design for the suit and functionality for the suit. And I really enjoyed that part of this film. And it takes place in Rome, which is super cool in Italy. And we got a bunch of great set pieces. And again, the actions, it's fantastic. The, the CGI is great. And honestly, I can't wait for spider-man 3 because if we have all these old spideys coming back doc ox coming back like this cast is going to be so cool and i i hope it happens and i hope it's actually true that everyone's in it yeah if this alternate dimension spider-verse happens it would be a fantastic movie just to see toby mcguire tom holland and andrew garfield sharing scenes together as spider-man that would absolutely blow my mind but far from home is a great sequel obviously marvel knows what they're doing and um looking forward to the next one and Jake is obviously a very busy actor. He's got like seven movies and pre post and current production. So he's obviously one of the most in-demand actors right now. And he's one of the best to be doing it. And I can't wait to keep watching this guy's career. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 49 of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit the notification bells, and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Become a patron today to help support us and get awesome perks. Thank you so much for tuning in.